being here today, and I appreciate the Lord not blowing our homes away. We had the windstorm. Some of you did too. Windstorm today. We got some hail our way, and uh, lightning and thunder, and it was incredible. By the way, I'm glad that you made it to church tonight. It was quite an ordeal this afternoon. People tried to figure out how to get here. If you're coming from the west at all, you know that uh, McWinney is uh, is all shut down. Uh, just down the road here over to uh, uh, Rocky Mountain. And so if you're going home that way, you can detour either way and go around. So it is accessible, but a little bit of a pain. And so just pray that things go quickly and they get that road uh, taken care of as soon as possible. We had, it's funny, we had uh, about half the number of folks at the beginning of our Bible study. And they trickled in, trickled in, trickled in. So I think that they were getting... You know, trying to find out how to get to church is my guess, but I appreciate you being here. Let me just share a quick prayer request with you. We got word, uh, uh, I got word this morning, mid-morning, uh, from a friend back in Illinois that uh, a dear friend of my wife and I passed away. Um, they, uh, this would be uh, the husband of the lady that played the piano for me for many, many years. Uh, when I first went to uh, Illinois and uh, became on staff, I taught uh, music in the junior and senior high choir, and uh, I had a junior high girl that was playing the piano for me in the choir. And that junior high girl played exceptionally, and she played for me all the way through high school, and then uh, uh, went away to college, came back, and got married, and became my choir, my adult choir pianist and was that for many, many years. She actually taught my daughters, all three of my daughters, she taught piano. And um, her husband passed away. He's only 50, what did they say? Around 55, I believe. Some, they're not sure, some kind of a heart condition they believe took him, but uh, just appreciate your prayers for, uh, his name was Gary, and her name's uh, Michelle, so I know to appreciate uh, your prayers during this time. I'm glad there's a heaven. I'm glad that he's given us the reassurance to know that uh, who our loved ones are who know him. That means so, so much. We're going to be in Isaiah 41 this evening. And I'm glad to be able to say that. Starting last week where we started chapter 40, what a difference. As uh, last week we began with these words in verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. What a difference. 39 chapters before that, there wasn't a whole lot of comfort. It was, you're going to be judged. Because of your wicked condition, you're going to be judged. Now, interspersed in that, God would take and uh, spend sometimes a few verses, sometimes a chapter, and look to the future during the uh, uh, millennium and give us a little sneak peek. But now, for the last third of the book, we're pretty much going to be looking beyond uh, Israel's judgment and they're going to be looking back on that, and so it's really a blessed time. And there's some beautiful verses, of course, Isaiah 40, 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. We find that beautiful passage in chapter 40. You're going to hear a verse or two that's familiar to you in chapter number 41, and sprinkled throughout the chapters from here to the end are some glorious, encouraging verses, and so I'm grateful that we're in this, this part of the book uh, because it's much more encouraging. But to be honest with you, I don't think we could enjoy this last third as much if we didn't have the foundation of the first two-thirds. 
knowing that God is a God of justice and that he has to judge, his righteousness has to judge evil. Knowing that that's the case, it gives us such a better perspective of his mercy in the last third. Let's get into it. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, God orders the nations to be silent before him. I'll give you Roman number one, finish it, then we'll pray. Isaiah 41, 41 verse 1 says, Keep silence before me, O islands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Notice he says here in the very first one, let the people renew their strength. To me, that's encouraging. Let the people. Who are the people? The people of Israel. His people. Let them renew their strength. Why? Because they have been beaten up through the ages. And now, he said, finally, we're past the judgment, and it's time for them to catch their breath. This is a look beyond Judah's captivity and the coming of the Messiah, looking into the millennium, where God commands the nations to be quiet and listen to him. They have come through generations of persecution and judgment. It's time for them to enter into a new relationship with their God, one in which they will watch God defeat their enemies. So God orders the nations to be silent. This is the introduction, because we're going to go right into Roman number two after my prayer. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Lord, thank you for your love, and thank you, Lord, for heaven. Thank you that we have the confidence of knowing where our loved ones go when they have trusted in you. I pray for the family, for Michelle and the rest of her family members, for your comfort. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you might bless this time. I pray, Lord, that you might... Uh, Give to us the insights that can give us a greater appreciation of your mercy and a greater desire to serve you. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Number two, God raised up a nation. In verse number two, who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. If you spend a whole lot of time on that verse really thinking about it, you'd probably be like me and still wonder who in the world they're talking about. So all the commentaries are, most of them are leaning to one of two people here, either Cyrus or Abraham. And so after reading through them and, 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 and getting a, uh, and insights from them, I'm heavily leaning toward Abraham, and I'll tell you why. Um, it says here, of these two men, Cyrus, Abraham, it says, who raised up the righteous man from the east? The righteous man. Well, here a righteous man from the east is mentioned, one empowered mightily by God to rule over kings. Though much of this prophecy could refer to Cyrus, the king who came at God's bidding from the east is most likely describes Abraham. Letter A, God raised up righteous Abraham to inherit the land of Canaan. God called him and gave him the land of Israel, his people defeating the kings of the land and then inhabiting it. So God here looks beyond Abraham to his posterity, who, after failing to enter the promised land, finally marched in to possess it 40 years later. God's power was evidenced as he brought decisive victories in the land of Canaan, like dust to his sword, and stubble to his bow. That's how it describes it in this verse. Letter B, God led Abraham to a land he'd never seen. 
Verse 3, he pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. So God called Abraham from the land of where? Remember, God was, Abraham was called from the land of Ur. That's right. Far to the east and directed him on a path he had never walked. God protected him throughout his journey. And I told the class after I heard some kind of a grunt, I said, uh, Ur, that's the right. They didn't really answer. Ur, well, that's the right. It's the right answer. Ur is the correct answer. And so good job. God led Abraham to a land he had never seen. Letter C, God draws attention to the deity behind this marvelous work. Verse number four, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Though it's written a little uniquely, there's a powerful name for God here, a description of God here. And uh, once I started uh, putting the pieces together, I was very blessed by that. The Lord drew careful attention to the fact that it was He, Jehovah God, who had called Abraham and put in motion the establishment of the great Jewish nation. Interestingly, God's reference to Himself closely echoes the description of Jesus in Revelation. This is a strong suggestion that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the same as Jesus in the New Testament. Here in this verse, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Revelation 1.11 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Revelation 1.17, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead, and He laid His right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Revelation 2.8, under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last. Revelation 22.13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Letter D, God will intervene in the world and the nations will fear. Verse 5, the isles saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, I think, will be the return of the Lord Jesus when He comes in great power and glory at the second coming. The nations at that time will see Him. And as they see Him break through the clouds, they will mourn. In the millennium, all nations will come and bow before Him, worshiping Him as their King. The nations will fear. Matthew 24, verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <laughs> My previous pastor told a story of when he was a teenager. He and I had a, a, a close friend the same age, and his parents were going on a vacation for, I don't remember, a week, two weeks, something like that, and they left my pastor was a teenager and his friend in charge of the house for that time. My pastor says at the time, it probably wasn't a good thing because he wasn't mature enough to handle it because they decided to wait until the day before the parents were coming home to do any kind of cleanup. And what I mean is they didn't wash a dish. They just would use a dish, they'd put it in the sink. They'd use silverware, put it in the sink. 
Use a dish, sink, pans, pots, everything was out of the cupboards in the sink, piled high, of course. The parents were supposed to come on, I think, on a Thursday. And so they were going to spend all day on Wednesday cleaning up, getting ready for their return. What they didn't know was the parents' plans changed. And the parents came back home early on Wednesday to find the house a complete wreck. Guess who was not really excited about the return of his parents? The nations will mourn. Why? Because the nations are thinking they're getting by. The nations are thinking because they gathered together and united that they're strong enough to hold off on any kind of supernatural intervention. But when Jesus splits the, crowd, the clouds, they will all mourn with the full realization that they were wrong. Letter E. The nations turn to each other for strength against God. Verse 6. They helped everyone his neighbor. And everyone said to his brother, be of good courage. Well, the immediate response of the nations, these are the Gentile wicked nations, the immediate response to their intimidation towards God was to unite and to find strength in their idolatrous ways. They likely formed coalitions, strengthening each other against God and telling each other to be of good courage. We can do it. We can do it. Perhaps that's when the song Kumbaya became popular. I don't know. Letter F. Men's hearts turned to their false gods. Verse 7. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith. And he that smootheth with the hammer him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. Interesting description here. So it's looking at the scrambling to make more idols. Instead of turning to God and pleading for mercy, they doubled down in their idolatry. They encouraged each of the trades to get busy at their work. Carpenters encouraging the goldsmith. He that smootheth with the hammer, taking the hammer and, 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 and banging it out, smoothing that metal out. Um, instead of pleading for mercy, they, they went against God. They encouraged each of the trades to hasten their work, as making as many false gods as might be possible. Interesting note, one commentary described how during this particular time frame, the hammers they used did not have handles. Workers held the metal anvil in their hands, and they beat with, by holding that metal in their hands. One commentator writes, the jar occasioned to the nerves of the hand by this violent contact of metal with metal without the interposition of a wooden handle or other deadening substance would be intolerable to a modern workman. I can't imagine. You take that and bang, bang, bang. There's no shock absorber. It goes right into your hand. Number three, God gave his nation promises. Verse eight, but thou, Israel, art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Letter A, God chose Israel through Abraham. God here directs his attention back to Israel with a word of encouragement. And I love this. Over and over again, we get to be encouraged now. I love the encouragement. God called Israel both his servant and the seed of Abraham. 
of interest here is the unique relationship that God shared with Abraham. God called Abraham his friend. And I thought about that. I told the class this afternoon, I wonder when we see God, if he will have a name attached to our name. Attached to Abraham was friend. Abraham, my friend. I wonder what will be attached to our name as we see God. In 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend, forever? James 2.23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. In spite of the grievous way that Israel had forsaken their God and had chased false gods, God remembered his relationship with Abraham and honored his commitment to him. Israel was his servant, not because of their worthiness, but because of God's choice. God had chosen them as his plan to work through Abraham. Here we're reminded that God chose Jacob as his servant. Jews to this day are party to that covenant by birth. The church is party to a new covenant, the New Testament, with God by a spiritual birth. This choosing, or it could be called this election, as the Bible often describes, was a corporate choosing or a national choosing. God chose the nation of Israel. Letter B. God had called his people and again promised to not cast them away. Verse 9, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Here God called his people, the Jews, from the far country of Egypt, or the ends of the earth. For 400 years they had been serving the Egyptians in bondage, until God led them out under the leadership of Moses. He called them from, interesting, the chief men, among whom was Joseph. God had providentially directed Joseph to become the second in command over the great empire of Egypt. Again, God restated his commitment to Israel that they were his servant. God had chosen them as his own. In spite of his judgment, he would not cast them away. The long-suffering and great mercy of God is on full display here. 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Psalm 94, 14, For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Hmm. Letter C. God gave them a wonderful promise of his strength. Verse 10, here's one of those verses Perhaps it's familiar to you. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. One of the beautiful and powerful promises of God is seen here. God had made a covenant with his people, and he would remain faithful to his covenant because of his righteousness, not because of the righteousness of his people. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of a good courage, 
Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. God's promises to his people, the Jews of his national covenant, and to the church as a result of his new covenant. So, notice in the verse, three things. As our God, we need not fear. He will strengthen us, Isaiah 40, 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Secondly, he will help us. In Psalm 54 and verse 4, Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. Hebrews 13, 6, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Thirdly, he will uphold us. Psalm 37, 17, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth them with his hand. Number four, God would judge Israel's enemies. Verse 11, Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with thee shall perish. Letter A, the enemies of Israel will be judged. This word of prophecy could not apply in their day, as Israel, the northern kingdom, had already fallen to Assyria and had been deported. Assyria was threatening Judah. Within the next 100 years, Babylon would conquer the region, taking Judah away in three sieges. Israel and Judah would fail to be free of the rule of Gentile world leaders all the way up until 1948, when Israel became a sovereign state once again. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise will not come until Christ brings His judgment against the nations in the day of the Lord, leading into the millennium. Zechariah 12, verse 3, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Isaiah 45, 24, Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Letter B. The enemies of Israel will be completely destroyed. Verse 12, Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them. Even them that contended with thee, they that war against thee, shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. When God annihilated the great host of the Assyrian army, 185,000 in one evening, it became a foreshadowing of the great judgment that would fall on all of Israel's enemies in the day of judgment. During the tribulation, the nations of the world will mount a concerted attack against Israel. Falling for whatever lie the Antichrist will give them, the nations will believe that Israel is the source of all their problems. Freedom from the horrible plagues of the tribulation could only come by standing up against and destroying 
God's people, Israel. Of course, God's response will be their obliteration as Jesus Christ comes in His glory and de destroys the nations with the power of His word. Revelation 19, 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of Him that sat upon the horse. The sword, which sword, proceeded out of His mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Number five, God looked to Israel's future. Verse 13, For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. So letter A, God is our helper, we need not fear. Again, another wonderful promise to God's people. The immediate application is to the Jews, but it certainly applies to all people, including you, me, we who are in a church. God has always been close to and helped His people as they submitted to Him and were obedient. God gives us today His reassuring, Fear not, I will, be help, I will help thee. Letter B. God humbled Israel in reminding them that He would help them. Verse 14. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. We had quite a discussion this afternoon, this past, uh, when was it? Early in the year, maybe January, February. We went back to visit my daughter, Katie, in South Carolina. And it was warm enough, and went out back, and they've got this big pond out back. I did some fishing. Well, my grandkids that uh, from Kentucky showed up. So I got two grandsons, and they came, and I, I got to show one of them how to fish for the first time, which was a lot of fun. And so we had a bucket of worms, and, and we were drowning them, catching these bluegill, and it's having a lot of fun. Um, I took a worm out. They had never put a worm on hook before. So I took a worm out and showed them, and it was squiggly, and of course they were all going, ooh, grandpa, and all this kind of stuff. And so we had a long discussion in class this afternoon, and that is, do worms have real feelings? And it went on for too long, the discussion. Do worms have real feelings? Well, i got to tell you, when I grabbed that worm, it, it's, very, it's, it's, it's fairly nice and friendly until you take the sharp, pointy hook and you try to poke it. But I've noticed when you try to poke it, the worm squirts way back in my fingers trying to get away. That makes me think that that worm must be feeling the hook. Don't you imagine? Well, somebody said, well, worms physiologically do not have a brain. Okay? No brain in the worm, and I can understand that. No brain in the worm. But there are nerve endings. And so when the nerve endings are affected, that, that worm reacts to the nerve ending, which means there is pain there, even though there's no brain. Now, I'm bringing all that up to say, but look what God called Jacob, Israel. Called him a worm. Jacob, you're, you're a worm. I put my finger in that dirt and pull out one of these slimy worms. He said, God, that's what you really think of Jacob? Worm right there? I mean, they have no brain. And God says, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I thought about it. God is all-powerful, and next to Him, all other power is impotent. Haven't you heard this, this discussion? Well, you, you, you know, God is on this side, and the devil's on this side, and they're fighting back and forth to see who's going to win. 
And whoever happens to be stronger that day is going to win. God or the devil, God, sometimes the God's stronger, sometimes the devil's stronger. That's ludicrous. There, there is no competition because God is all-powerful, infinitely powerful. And once you get into infinity, every other power is impotent in comparison. You cannot compare. It's impossible. There is no comparison once you get into infinity, and that's God. So the devil is completely impotent next to God's power. Completely. You say, now wait a minute, I happen to know the devil's very strong. You know why the devil's strong? It's because we as, huma as humanity, as mankind, took a vote, and we voted him in as the prince of the power of the air. You say, well, I didn't vote. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You acted in self-will and sin. And because you did that, that elected him into his power. And that's what empowers him. God, in his sovereignty, has all power. And that's so cool. So just think about this. Here, Jacob, for so long, was saying, hey, we don't need you. We can worship false gods. And God says, you're a worm. You're a worm, Jacob. But let's not forget, I chose you. And I love you. And I'm going to take care of you for eternity. See, we're a millennium now. We're, we're, we're past the judgment. I'm going to be your God here. Now, why do you suppose God is calling him a worm? Well, God reminded Israel they were strengthless and of no value apart from him. To them, a helpless, strengthless, and wandering nation, he promised to help. Notice that he identifies himself to them as Jehovah, their Redeemer, and the Holy One of Israel. God is at once a merciful Redeemer and the Holy God. God humbled Israel in reminding them he would help them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't because you were so great. It was because I chose to love you, is what he said. Letter C. Israel will one day judge the nations of the earth. Verse 15, Behold, I will make thee a sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. See what he's talking about here. He's using an illustration here. Though Israel had been dominated by the Gentile nations for hundreds of years, there's coming a time in which God will empower Israel to become the capital of the world Israel will dominate over all the nations of the world in that day. Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh, he says, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Letter D, Israel will become the world's superpower. Incredible. Verse 16. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, 
and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. So verses 15 and 16 are describing the process of winnowing wheat. They take the grains of wheat, and several ways they can do it, but they can take it and they put it on the threshing floor, and they beat that. They beat the wheat. And the reason they're doing it is they're breaking the hard kernels off the wheat. And then they take and they cast all that up into the air for the wind to catch it. And the wind catches that real light chaff on the outside of the shell and blows it away, and the seeds fall down. The actual grain falls down. But notice in verse number 16, Thou shalt fan them. Here's God holding this big fan. What's the purpose of the fan? The fan is to blow away the chaff. So described as winnowing wheat by beating the hard shell and then casting it into the wind to blow away the chaff, Israel will become the dominating superpower of the world, subduing all the nations of the earth. Never has that been accomplished until now. This is a view to their position as Christ returns and sets up his reign in Jerusalem. Again, Matthew 3.12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Using that same analogy of winnowing wheat, letter E, God will faithfully provide for his own. Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now, I was teaching this this afternoon, and an image came into mind I hadn't thought about when I was studying. Here I'm reading about the poor and needy seeking water, their tongue failing them for thirst. Can you think, think of somebody in the Bible who pled for someone to cool their thirsty tongue? Who was that? Yeah, yeah, the rich man in hell, right? So was God going to cool his tongue? No, forever. What a contrast. There, there's, a, there's a rich man in hell who was thirsty and his tongue was tormented from the heat. Just, just, just tip the tip of my finger, finger and, and want to cool my tip of my tongue, he says. But notice here, I will hear them, not the ones in hell, but my own people, Israel. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. What a contrast. What a contrast for those of us that know the Lord. To think of the incredible eternity that we're going to have in heaven forever and ever and ever. Never thirsting. Never hungering. Being filled with inestimable joy forever, while at the same time, in hell, they will never experience joy. Here, though the initial application is to God's people, the Jews, the merciful nature of God is revealed for all who will humbly call upon God for provision. God was merciful with Hagar in the wilderness, remember? When, when Sarah had Abraham kick Hagar out and her son, God was merciful provided for her, though she had been an accomplice in a sordid plan, and though she was not of Israel, 
Still, God provided for her and her son. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is again found in the millennium when God elevates Israel into a position of prominence. God will faithfully provide for His own. Letter F. Israel, now arid, will become lush in vegetation. Verse 18. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. In the time of this writing, Israel was, was basically arid desert. Now I'm told, Randy, I'm told that much of Israel today is well watered because of irrigation. But there are still large portions of Israel, like the southern part, that is deserty. Um, let's see, Israel on the Israel and Jordan border, I believe, is what I read. And that portion is called the Araba Desert. A R-A-B-A-H is one way you, you spell it. And though I forgot to write it down, in this verse, one of the words in the Hebrew is Araba, where it's describing the desert region, that it's desert at this timing, but there's coming a time where it will all be well watered as God um, will become lush, the, Israel will become lush in its vegetation. Did I just read you letter F? Okay, good. <laughs> Thus, though since becoming a state, Israel has done much to irrigate the land and make it fertile, still this prophecy looks to the millennium when the water will be abundant in the land, making it a lush, verdant region. Number one, God will plant forests in the deserts. Chapter 41, verse 19, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, and the pine, and the box tree together. You can't do that. They'll all die. They all have to have water. Ah, in this time they will have water. That's the point. These trees, especially a myrtle, they've got to have lots of water. But they will have in the millennium. In the millennium, God will raise up a dense forest, even in the deserts. Number two, God's hand will be undeniable. Verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. So complete will be the transformation of the land of the millennium, it will be undeniable that Jehovah was responsible. The Holy One of Israel will bless the land in a Garden of Eden quality, and the world will recognize His hand in it. Psalm 109, verse 27, That they may know that this is Thy hand, that Thou, Lord, hast done it. Number five, God ridicules idolatry. Did you know that God ridicules sometimes? <laughs> he ridicules. Letter A, God challenged the nations to defend themselves. And this is almost funny. Verse 21, To the nations, he says, to the Gentile nations, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. The focus here shifts back to the wicked nations who have abused Israel. Guilty they stand before God. As their judge, he demands they provide their defense for their wickedness. In essence, he was challenging them to give a reason to not judge them. 
I found these verses in Job chapter 40 and verse 7. It reminded me of God um, causing them to defend themselves. Job 40 verse 7. Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? As he contends with Job. Letter B. God challenges the nations to perfect their defense. <laughs> they better have a good lawyer. They're going up against God. Verse 22. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Here God challenges the heathen nations to get their defense in order. They should be able to, prop, to provide a chronological list of issues along with their projected end. All of their work will be considered by the judge. <laughs> Letter C. God mocked the idols of the nations. Verse 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter. That we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. In your mind, just here's God, and he lines up all the false gods of the nations. And he said, basically, do something. Do something good or do something bad. Do anything so that we can be impressed. He said, and they just stand there. They just stand there. They just don't move. God's mocking the idols. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 5, they are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They, they must needs be born or carried because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it them to do good. They're just idols. Letter D, God declares idols are nothing. Verse 24, behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. God concludes his confrontation with the idols by declaring they're nothing and they accomplish nothing. And anyone foolish enough to worship them is an abomination before God. Letter E, God would raise up the powerful Cyrus. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, or the east, shall he call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes that upon mortar, and as the potter treadeth clay. This one raised up from the north and from the rising of the sun, or the east, likely refers to Cyrus. God raised this Gentile king approximately 150 years later to orchestrate the rebuilding of the temple, following its destruction by Babylon. Cyrus would lead his powerful force of the Medes and Persians to destroy Babylon and become the reigning world power. Cyrus would call upon the name of Jehovah, which is really interesting. This Gentile king, Cyrus, that was used mightily by God, called upon Jehovah, though there's not sufficient support that he actually gave up his own idolatry. He recognized Jehovah as the true God, 
probably having read Isaiah's prophecy. In Ezra 1, 1 and 2, let me just read verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He doesn't explain it. We don't know all the ins and outs, but he gives Jehovah God the credit. Letter F, what idol can tell the future? God mocked. Verse 26, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. He gives another jab at the idols. God asks, who is it that can tell the future? Tell us that we might declare his righteousness. Well, of course, there is none but God alone. Judah here was being given a sharp warning to stop flirting with idolatry, as God would bring harsh judgment upon all who do. Letter G. God told Judah to consider the fate of idols and compare with the coming Messiah. Verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. God, called here the first, the first and the last, here he's called the first, declared to Jerusalem to consider those false gods and their fate. In contrast, he said he would give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. Of course, this is the Messiah. Isaiah 41.4, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Letter H. No one could present a profitable idol. Verse 28. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor that, when I asked of them, could answer a word. God's challenge to the idol worshipers went without a response. None could find the idol that could even respond, let alone tell the future. How foolish was their worship. And letter I, God's conclusion. Idols are all vanity. Verse 29, behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. He concludes this chapter with his assessment of idols and their worshipers. They're worthless and their worship is nothing more than wind and confusion. So actually, they're worse than nothing. With God volunteering himself to be their God, why would anyone choose them instead, something lifeless that cannot even think? So craftsmen would make idols. It was m their business. We go to Ephesus and we see the craftsmen making uh, idols to the, the goddess Diana. That was their whole business. So just imagine the hundreds and thousands of these little icons that are being sold. So thousands and thousands across these Gentile nations of these little idols being sold and worshipped. So let's gather them all up. God could do that. Let's gather them all up and take this big field 
And we put all the idols there on this big field. And God on one side of the field, and all the idols on the other. And God says, okay, do something. Anything. Thousands and thousands of idols that these men have worshipped. All right, do, it, do anything. Sing a song. Clap your hands. Jump up and down. Do anything. And it's silent. And that's the foolishness of men who choose to worship them. And we discussed this afternoon. Why would anyone be so foolish to choose a dumb idol over God? And let me suggest to you what I think is the reason. Man does not have to subject himself to the idol. He can do whatever he wants. He can make that idol whatever he wants. That becomes his God. He can do whatever he wants. But to that God, man has to bow and worship and obey. And so because man chooses not to obey that God, he instead foolishly gives his worship to an inanimate God. Such is our study. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for chapter number 42 in Isaiah. I do pray, Lord, that you might help us as we study this book of Isaiah to gather truths that can help us to be more like you. Lord, thank you for your mercy. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.